0: Game on, weeknights from 6 On
1: 2FM And a very good evening from Damien O'Mara You are most welcome to the first live programme of 2023 Happy New Year, one and all between now and 7 o'clock a massive couple of days of soccer to catch up on, a massive couple of days of rugby, racing and darts and that will combine to create what we hope will be an hour of good sporting chat between now and 7 o'clock 51552 is our text number at GameOn2FM we'll get us on Twitter we'd love to hear from you between now and 7 GameOn on On
0: 2FM and
1: we are going to begin with soccer 29 minutes played at the G Tech Community Stadium where Keith Tracy good evening hello Um, Liverpool trailing by a goal to nil probably should be 2-0 down despite the fact that they've created the best goal scoring opportunities they've had they've had gr-
2: two great opportunities uh, Timicus had one one really good volley from about 17 18 yards out the Brentford goalkeeper made a really good save and Van Dyke as well made a third man run and hits a volley but again the Brentford keeper manages to make a save and out of nowhere really Brentford had a corner they put it in and it looked immediately like uh, Ben Mee had put the ball into the back of the net but it's actually Kanate OG oh it hits him in the leg and just goes into the back of the net and five minutes after that Vissa had the ball in the back of the net for Brentford again it's been uh, disallowed because of offside he actually runs into the gold and uh, there's a bit of a melee the ball drops and he comes back and sweeps it into the back of the net he was coming back from an offside position but Liverpool
1: look really really fragile defensively Um, we we talk about we can obsess on zonal marking and all this sort of stuff the first rule I was always told for a set piece particularly a corner man on the front post and had Liverpool had a man on the front post this game would be scoreless
2: yeah it, it's one of the old rules I was brought up as well one on the front one on the back if you're on the if you're on the front post then you you make your way to the back post if a ball goes over your head but yeah if, if they had a man on the post it, in it's a brilliant thing but I, I've never been one for, for the zone on mark and I, I feel you lose the initiative if you let somebody get a run on you and two of, two of the Brentford goals I know one of them was allowed but they're both balls into the box to have them been defended particularly well by Liverpool and as well we've seen Van Dijk get exposed in a 1v1 which is you know not something you really associate with him so a lot of question marks over Liverpool mm-hmm. still And they were a team that really needed the World Cup break and you, you expected when he came back they would start catching a bit of fire but at the minute it's just not happening
1: Yeah and now come here there's an hour of football left to play um, it's far too early for Brentford to sit in and try and get a result from it but the, you know, confidence is so important in this and all of the momentum in this game, despite the fact that we just had a complete miscue from um, Pinnock in the Brentford defence has given Liverpool a corner. But, um, yeah, Brentford, one of those teams that are set up to contain, are set up to defend. There's a lot of football yet to play, but they won't be too overawed with the prospect of trying to hold this Liverpool team out. No, not at all. And
2: I have to be honest, when I was looking at this one before before the game kicked off on paper, when you take uh, Ivan Toney, out of the Brentford team he was injured today he's scored 12 of their Premier League goals already so he's a huge huge part of what Brentford do going forward he's not there today and Brentford have already had the the ball in the back of the Liverpool net twice and that's from, from open play they haven't really been in the game they're defending well but when they spring out and they're putting balls into the box like I say Liverpool look really really fragile
1: yeah Raya has uh, had a good game so far he's just called into action from uh, Alex Oxlade Chamberlain so 32 minutes played there we're going to keep an eye on that we're going to catch up uh, all going well with Nigel Bidmead at half time um, in that game Liverpool 6th in the Premier League table in advance of kickoff. Brentford down in 10 Brentford unbeaten in 5 3 draws and 2 wins Liverpool uh, 4 wins on the bounce going into this Um, it's such a a confusing time like okay, the games are so frenetic Keith but you can't of forget where the form line is at and you know who's under pressure who's not under pressure Um we look at the table Arsenal um, you know seven points clear 4-2 win over Brighton last day out Um surely I was going to say even Arsenal can't do an Arsenal but seven points clear only 16 games played it is still too early to be getting overly excited when you look at the depth of talent available at Manchester City in second Newcastle in third and the likelihood that both will be in a position to strengthen in January, should they wish.
2: Yeah, look, I, I, I'm very reluctant, to, I, I'm an Arsenal fan, and I'm very, very reluctant to get behind the the Arsenal push that they will win the league. And that's not because I don't think Arsenal have been brilliant, they have, they've been absolutely exceptional, but Head & Shoulders, the best team in the league, that's, they've scored 40 goals already, only conceded 14, so at both end of the pitches, both ends of the pitch they're very, very impressive with Martinelli, Martinelli Saka Odegaard, guard and Ketia and I have to be honest when, when I heard Jesus was out with a knee injury till uh, till February I thought Arsenal would really, really struggle and there is still time for that to happen but Ketia at the minute has taken to it like a duck to water he's scoring goals he's pressing really, really well and Saliba and Gabriel Ben White at the back has been excellent as well mm. Zinchenko hasn't played all the time but when he does he's been really, really good Thomas Partey you know you could pick out any of the Arsenal players they're all individually having a really really good season but the only reason for me that Arsenal won't win the league is because of Manchester City I know at the minute they haven't been great they weren't great uh, the other day against against Everton only a
1: one all draw but I feel they've a couple of more gears to go the the issue as well is and and you know you've been in dressing rooms you know the importance of either positive or negative momentum Arsenal it's nine wins and a draw from 10 games in the league it's a phenomenal run of form the real issue or how much of an issue arises when you drop a po- you know not necessarily draw a game but if you if you lose if you lose two out of three say is that when the self-doubt starts to kick in that positive momentum is brilliant but we're a fragile human race by the nature
2: Yeah and I see this, this is what Arsenal everything's going well they're playing well and everything's, everything seems to be on the up the The questions I need answered is when, when it's getting tough when they're getting beaten when seems things seems to be going against them can they still wrestle a game back they haven't had to do that just yet and look they have an awful lot of young players in their team as well they're all excelling at the minute but Saka the the right winger, he played a big bulk of England's game as well. Is he gonna be able to play fifty games this season without getting, you know, a slight hamstring injury here and there? If you know, Jesus has already gone, oh the guard is scoring the goals, he's creating the goals.
1: He's been outstanding so far. Mm-hmm. If he gets a little injury He come here, is he a contender for Player of the Year? I know we're only halfway through the season but his importance to that squad at 24 years of age a player who went to Madrid with such a weight of expectation and in some quarters was deemed a fellow who hadn't fulfilled his potential he is so crucial to that team and has done so much you know basically that team plays around him when he's on form yeah,
2: and you're spot on I think him and let's be honest Schacke as well in the middle of the Swiss centre midfielder he's been, he's been outstanding but Odegaard oh, for me he, he showed quick feet yesterday against Brighton to set up a chance for Martinelli the ball when it came into the middle of the pitch for Martinelli's goal that he just flicks around the corner and he, he exposes Lampardy and Martinelli manages to get in behind but that, that's that been able to read the game because when if you take a still frame of that picture that pass is not on Mm. but Odegaard can see if I play it into that pace if Martinelli's thinking the same thing we can get in behind here and they're just clicking all over the pitch but for me the great thing is I know Jesus is out but Arsenal have a spread of goal scorers everybody seems to be chipping in at the right time and
1: defensively as well it all seems to have clicked the other thing um, I've joked on, on programmes before that I don't get excited about Liverpool potentially signing a player until fans are on Flight Radar 24 trying to track a private plane which Liverpool fans seem to do more than any other club. Arsenal fans are slightly guilty of it today. Um, Mikhailo Mudrik the Shakhtar Donetsk player who's been brilliant in the Champions League has pictures on Instagram and been, there's one guy on Twitter has analysed it that that's a UK brand of uh, gym equipment he's using and the smoke <laughs> alarms <laughs> and even down to the point that I, I'll show you the tweet there's like a three point plug in the back. He's going. He's definitely in the UK. He's definitely on his way. If you believe the rumor mill, they're going to strengthen with him in the the window, which would be such a massive boost defensively as well. Yeah, he's, he
2: he does seem to be one of the outstanding wingers. I I actually did when I started doing me, me analysis, doing the the analysis gig. I had me very first game with Shakhtar Donetsk against Monaco a, a couple of maybe two years ago now and Mudrick come off the bench in that game and he was absolutely outstanding and I remember just taking a little mental note and saying, Will this fella make it to the Premiership at some point? I then seen him playing for Ukraine against the Republic of Ireland a couple of times and I was impressed again. He's 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 a little bit raw. He he's very, very quick. He gets in behind. He's very direct. He does have an end product in him but it needs to it needs to come more often but for me the buying potential Martinelli on the left has been absolutely outstanding but you need that little bit of competition and if Arsenal can get Mudrick which it looks like they are going to I think he's an outstanding sign, and I'd be delighted to to watch him play
1: yes like here here's here's the level of detail like th- there's there's pictures where they're analyzing the air vents that are in the back room the background of the gym he's in uh training so the, uh, yeah anyway, <laughs> Arsenal fans are trumping Liverpool fans in terms of their uh, conspiracy theories around um transfers just before we move on. Um, I know you've not seen it the the Amazon Prime documentary series about Arsenal the behind the scenes thing it is impossible to watch it without being completely taken by Mikel Arteta as a human being firstly and the level of like player management and just an inherently decent fella yeah. but in managerial terms he has turned the it. he appears to have turned the entire culture of that club around with Edu who's the sporting director in terms of a willingness to spend where it's right to spend um, Do you want to break away? Yeah Johan this has just made
2: it 2-0 to Brentford and it, it was just a. It's a, again it's a cross into the box it's a corner for Brentford and Allison's waving his arms he's giving out I'm not sure if it's going to go to VAR but in real time it didn't look like there was anything wrong with it whatsoever Liverpool are just doing the basics you know you're going to, you're away to, to Brentford the first thing you're going to say to your lads is we can't defend from set pieces here if they're going to score it's going to have to be a worldie we're going to wait them home keeping nice and tight L- Liverpool are just so so fragile mm. balls going into the box they always look like they're going to hit the back of the net and again they're th- it's so so slack the mark and there is I think there's four Brentford players off offside from the shot from visa, but they make no, no they're not in, involved in the play whatsoever so this should stand
1: oh it takes oh. a flick off Kanate again was it Kanate or was Canate? it Ben Mee if it's oh, Ben okay, Me, we'll then the goal's
2: going to be disallowed
1: anyway while they're looking at VAR the Arteta effect because it can't be underestimated the impact he has had on that club knowing mm-hmm. them so well and maybe knowing what had gone wrong post the Wenger era yeah and look I take it back to
2: so many years ago I, I played against uh, Arteta while he was at, while he was at Everton and I, I was a young lad and I remember playing a ball down the wing and he clipped me heels but he picked me up and I remember being a little bit taken back by you thinking this fella's a bit nice to be a footballer and I, that seems to have rolled over to him as a manager as well he seems to be really nice I haven't seen the documentary I'm talking about I've seen bits and bobs of it But Arteta to me always came across as a nice fella but he's tactically very very astute he has the Manchester the Manchester City way and like I say if Arsenal are to go on and lose one or two games and then maybe it gets a little bit squeaky bum time that's when Jay Zeus and Zinchenko are going to be invaluable for them
1: So the big issue then is Manchester City have the experience of getting over the line Newcastle have the money to spend in January should they wish which um, now I know Eddie Howe has talked about the implications of financial fair play down the road but surely the Newcastle ownership if they see the potential to press on and win a Premier League are going to spend in January if that's what needs to bring success this year Uh, offside so it's still (sighs) 1-0
2: Yeah, but Jürgen Klopp must be must be just just five minutes to go till half time. He must be, de- he must just want to get the lads in and, and give them a right out rollicking because Liverpool have been nowhere near. I know they've had two two or three really good chances that the Brentford keepers made good saves from, but defensively they've been non-existent. Every time Brentford go forward, they're causing a big threat. And there's
1: oh, oh, oh my well, god, what, it's save of the season, what a save! From. That was it's the refs get it's a goal
2: it's gone over the line it, it's another yeah. ball into the box and, and Vissa this time again gets his head on it he, he heads it it's a grey header into the ground Alisson gets a hand on it but it must have gone beyond the line because the referee took one one look at his wrist and pointed to the halfway yeah.
1: line for a goal so Brentford deserving 2-0 leaders um, Manchester City Newcastle do you expect him to spend?
2: I expect Newcastle maybe to, to try and spend uh, I I still think the Madison one is not dead yet I think uh, James Madison from Leicester I, they obviously really wanted him in the summer I think they might push into January Leicester I think need him I think they'll do all they can to keep on to them but we know they have financial problems in the background I'm not too sure Tillemans was on the bench as well maybe he could end up coming out of uh, coming out of Leicester as well so I don't think Manchester City will threaten too much I think they have a nice balance at the minute and
1: like I say I think they've two or three gears to go. Bizarrely, as it might sound, for a player of his quality and what he has done, are they, sorry, the squad they have, are they overly reliant on Haaland? Like, if Haaland was to pull up injured in the early stages of the new year, how worried would you be from a Manchester City perspective?
2: Uh, I wouldn't be that worried, I'll be honest with you. I know he scores an awful lot of goals, but for me... Kevin De Bruyne is the one I know M- Manchester City are far from a one man team but Kevin De Bruyne had an off day uh, against Everton the other day he, he's passed it just, he, he kept trying and trying and trying the, the Hollywood pass but it just wasn't coming off and if Kevin De Bruyne has a day like that Manchester City mm-hmm. seem to suffer along with him so I, I wouldn't pin it on Halland Halland you know, he, he scores an awful lot of goals a lot of uh, individual goals but a lot of goals are put on the play for him as well so I think anybody could do a job up there for City
1: So we look at it um, we're at that time of the year again now where the transfer window and I know it's one of these cliches we put out there but it does seem to be the case that owners sporting directors everybody else they start to get that little bit nervy with the trigger finger when it comes to managers I'm slightly surprised that more clubs didn't make changes during the World Cup when you had the potential for managers to get a bit of time working with squads Um, like David Moyes odds on favourite apparently to be the next manager to lose his job Frank Lampard Um, second in the betting if you live your life by these things Um, Everton obviously getting a a surprise draw against Manchester City last time out Um, the Moyes situation there was an awful lot in his post-match press conference after um, the defeat against Brentford ironically enough where he was talking a lot about his interests being what is in the best interest of the club and I didn't get a sense that it was a guy who was necessarily coming out fighting for his job I got the impression it was a guy that was kind of saying well I've done what I can do and if it's not to be me and the club needs to move forward it's time for them to move forward he seems to be in a really perilous position
2: yeah no, I, I thought it was a great interview from him to be honest you know you get these generic interviews from managers that say stuff without really saying anything but he was saying you know I, I feel like I, I could do more I brought West Ham up to a level and I'm desperate not to let West Ham drift back down the table and, and be in relegations battles again I think they're struggling from the rewards of last season. They're in Europe this season. They are really struggling with the bulk of games and you know, to some of the players they bought in, you know, I know Samaka's is doing okay, but you know, I I've seen him play for Italy. He's so different to what Mikel Antonio is and they don't play with a two, they will generally play with a one and I think Suchek and Royce Royce is obviously a little bit younger than Suchek but I think Suchek is, is struggling to really get himself into games this season and Declan Royce and Suchek were a big part of what West Ham did, did last season but for me football, football fans in particular have very very short memories and on the whole David Moyes is doing a very good job like, it's a bit patchy right, this season you
1: finals last, yeah. last season beaten by the team that went on to win it eventually um, but the, the, the issue is you've got two owners who like to see themselves as being tough East End boys £160 million spent in the transfer window they're looking for a return on that and there's no place for sentimentality in sport but do, do you think he'll hold out? I don't know in,
2: in this world of football I'd never say I think the owners will hold out because you're only ever a couple of, of results away but David Moyes said it himself he was asked do you think the criticism you're receiving at the minute is unfair and he replied no he said if you, if you don't win in five games you're going to receive criticism so he, he's, very, he's very aware of the situation he's in himself and where where did they go from here? Who did they who do they the bring in? Yeah.
1: yeah, and the the other thing we were talking all fair beforehand from a League of Ireland perspective about realistic sense of expectations for certain clubs ahead of the season starting. You look at West Ham, Everton. How far are they underachieving? Like should should West Ham be well 160 million spent? You expect them to be further up the table. Like Everton fans, big protest um, plan for Goodison Park. This week, at not necessarily Lampard's handling of the club, but the owner's handling of the club, which is a very perilous position to be in, when you've got an owner who's after building them a new fifty thousand seater stadium down the docks, which is getting ready to open in twenty
2: twenty four. Yeah, the the Everton one is 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 a bit weird because the timing of it, they, they actually seem to have turned a bit of a corner on the Lampard. They're starting to pick up a few points, I know. I, I watched the Manchester City game and everything and everything weren't great it was a great finish by the Marty Gray to go and get them to draw but within the game themselves they weren't really in it I I don't know whether the Godfrey and Haaland thing the uh, Godfrey getting a bit physical with Haaland Haaland seemed to enjoy it he only scored the one goal so maybe people might highlight that and now try and get a bit physical with him but yeah Everton were not really in that game but I, I do think the timing of this from the fans is a little bit peculiar because like I say I feel the performances on the pitch are just starting to turn a corner and the timing of this is not what you want as a player really mm. so it just feels like there's, it's, there's a bad feel around Everton Football Club at the minute on the pitch I say as I say I feel like they're starting to get better but they've only scored 14 goals and conceded 20 which is not something that fans can get behind
1: You talk about the openness in interviews and, and Moyes and the honest answers to an honest question I thought Antonio Conte the last couple of days has been brilliant as well insofar as you know, they're sitting 5th in the Premier League um, 13 points behind um, Arsenal who are top of the table but you know, beaten 2-0 by Aston Villa who are a completely different team under Emery compared to what Gerrard was doing with them and Conte comes out to talk about you know, we were beaten by a team who have improved significantly, and the expectation level is true to roof at Spurs. Which does he have a point? I think he does have a point. And you, do, know, do you know, do you get a little bit punch drunk on? You get Champions League football. You have a season where you're pushing for the league, but we, unless you get over the line, is it fair to have that same sense of expectation year in year out?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think Spurs the last last season definitely overachieved. This season. I'm just not so sure I've seen quite a lot of them and Conte seems to be you know the bottom lip can come out quite quickly when they don't do what he wants and the performances for me have been awful I know they're sitting fifth in the league they're not doing too badly they've 30 points only two points behind Manchester United and fourth so points, the points total is absolutely fine but you even look at last uh, the last outing against Brentford they were 2-0 down before they decided to throw a punch and mm. they've been very very reactive in games and I think that's why the Spurs fans are finding it very hard to get behind Antonio Conte because they go out there and they're really really defensive then they take a, a, a little punch on the nose and all of a sudden they say okay we'll go and try and win the game now and some, more, more often than not this season they managed to pull her out of fire but against Aston Villa they just couldn't stem the tide and it was a really really poor performance but and Conte looked
1: really dejected after the other problem that he has is you've got Pochettino in the shadows mm. out of work and Daniel Levy a man who will spin it to say look I'm going to bring back this returning hero if that becomes the case and that surely has to be part of the narrative around Conte as well that he knows there is a man standing by who could be lured back to the club that would make the chief executive look like a hero for bringing him back in you know so it's you know a reminder of that fickle world that yeah. You it, operating. yeah, it's a very, very fickle
2: world and I look, at it, it's what Tottenham fans want do you, do you want a manager who will force his way into the top six and you might get some sort of European football next season or do you want to bring the likes of a Pochettino in who might play more attractive football but by no means will he secure that top, top six finish and mm. with the strength of the league this season I would try and stick with Conte because like I say he's long in the tooth he knows what he's doing it's not pretty to watch by any means but I do think they stand a better chance of st-
1: finishing in the top six or European football with Conte. Just, um, I want to talk to you about transfer rumours and what it's like within a dressing room, and we best touch upon Ronaldo at some stage as well. But one of the standout things over the, the Christmas and New Year period, Evan Ferguson, mm. um, first Premier League goal, youngest sc- Premier League goal scorer in Brighton's history. Um, I'm told, because Betty's Town is in Mead, he's the first ever Mead man to score in the Premier League. But it continues this great upward. Trajectory for him and you kind of forget this is only a young lad who's played I think you can count on two hands the number of first team games he's played and he took the goal brilliantly the composure the two things really impressed me the composure with the finish where he managed to muscle a defender off the ball roll his foot over the ball put into net but if you watch it back really early on in the move he is demanding where yeah. Dunk puts the ball in like, ma- like massive experiencedly mature head on young shoulders yeah I think you're spot on Damien I know he got a good goal it was good persistence
2: Saliba made a bit of a, a, bit of a mistake but he's there he, he bulls him off the ball and even Ramsdale is out like a out like a cat he's trying to jump on the ball but he just passes her under him but the most impressive thing for me is that Trossard was leading the line and Trossard is an outstanding football he's not a, a centre forward for me but when Evan Ferguson went on, on up front he led the line an awful lot better mm. Brighton looked a lot better And he looks like a man. He's only 18, 19 years of age, but he looks like a man when he plays as well. So he's more than than capable of the physical battle. He seems to have all the tools, but... I just seem to remember an Aaron Connolly coming on and, and doing really, really well for Brighton and he's in Serie Bay at the minute. And look, that's that's not a bad standard of football, but we expected Aaron to go and, and set the world on fire and be Ireland's next Robbie Cain. That hasn't worked out. So I'm very reluctant to put this on Evan, Evan
1: Ferguson's shoulders, I although he looks very good. That is a reasonable and mature <laughs> approach from you. Uh, let's get the story of the first half then from the GTech Community Stadium. We've been watching it here in studio, Nigel Bidmead, and I would imagine the place must be hopping at halftime.
3: Oh it certainly is. That's an extraordinary 45 minutes for Brentford. Don't forget they went into this game uh, without their leading scorer Ivan Tony. He scored almost half their goals. He's out injured but Brentford have set about Liverpool in uh, an extraordinary way. Uh, They really have exploited Liverpool's weaknesses at the back. The opener on 19, an own goal, a right wing corner hitting Liverpool's centre half Ibrahima Kanate and flying past Alisson in the Liverpool goal. Twice uh, Johan Wieser put the ball All in the net from set pieces. Twice it was ruled out, but Visa did eventually double Brentford's lead on 42. His firm header from a right-wing cross was clawed out by Alisson, but the ball had crossed the line and the goal was given. Liverpool are in
1: serious trouble here because Brentford lead two goals to nil. Uh, Nigel can we expect changes do you think at half time because Jurgen Klopp I don't know from the press box how good a vantage point you have but he's cutting a frustrated and angry figure on our monitors here in front of us
3: well, I, 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 I mean, I think left-back is a is a real issue for them. A, a lot of um, Brentford's attacks are coming down this uh, right-hand side for them, and they um, have been really poor at defending them. I mean, uh, OK, so a couple of them have been corners, but, um, you know, they do have a problem on their left side of defence. So uh, whether he can look at that and and uh, perhaps uh, give Simikas a, a, a break, I don't know. But it's all over the pitch as well. Rico Henry... The left back for Brentford has had a storming first half against Trent Alexander Arnold and it's not like Liverpool have been out of it, they had a really good opportunity in the uh, opening period of the game when Darwin Nunez went round the keeper and Ben Mee made a fantastic stop from behind his own keeper and they've had other opportunities as well but Brentford have just been superb and I suppose really the question is can Brentford keep it up for the whole 90 minutes?
1: We'll wait and see how it plays out Nigel for now, thanks so much uh, for being with us Nigel Bedenmead there at the uh, Brent for Liverpool game Brentford 2-0 up at half time and had the ball in the net a couple more times um, before I let you go um, I've often I don't have the energy to do it but I've often thought it'd be a great exercise to get all the tabloid newspapers write down every rumour transfer and see how many of them actually materialise and I'd say it'd be less than 5% this time of the year from a player's perspective how much do you talk about rumours within the dressing room how much do you put the rumours out there yourself be it through yourself or true agents or like, is it a time of loads of gossiping and chat about who's going where no it's Ah, you've ruined it for me Keith
2: no I'm sorry I'd love to sit here and give you a bit of dirt on what happens in the dressing room but really I've been involved in some you know, uh, January moves some summer moves and really players don't really talk about it if there's some obscure one that comes out of left field you might get a bit of banter about it on the changing ground but really if there's one that's true it's very, very quiet and it's nobody talks. Yeah, if if something comes true when nobody's talking about it, then maybe it is gonna happen. But I remember I, I told you I had a funny one with Charlie Austin where he came in and said goodbye to everybody and he thought he was on the way to Hull but actually failed his medical and had to come back and train the next day with his tail between his legs. Which will tell you why players, you know, they yeah. don't open their mouths, they just wanna get out the door if it happens and you might get a text, but generally there's an old saying that footballers are ships in the night you know there's mm. very
1: few relationships between them yeah it's that thing when you leave the WhatsApp group I think is the new yeah. thing that's what everyone every player talks about retirement and leaving the WhatsApp group mm. um, Alexis McAllister back to Brighton today um, massive reaction like griff- uh, confetti cannons in reception and all sorts of stuff and then you're saying to yourself will they be as friendly towards them in three weeks time if this Chelsea move which has been rumoured mm. materialises so it's it's fickle to finish maybe to finish on the issue of being fickle. Ronaldo, the move to Saudi Arabia. It's impossible to say that there is any reason to go there rather than this rumoured £180 million mm. sterling a year that he's going to make. And you'd wonder the last couple of weeks, the interview with Morgan, the petulance around his departure from United, and then Messi, who let's remember is at a club that's been bankrolled by the Qataris, so he's mm. no saint either when it comes to sports washing and everything else but it's almost like the the world has spun on its axis Ronaldo is the villain Messi is the hero and Ronaldo's not doing his case any favours by heading off into the sunset to cash in in his retirement years
2: Yeah well it's very hard to to say Ronaldo's move is anything other than a financially motivated, because going over there, the league is not as strong as what he could be able to play in. And look, I, I'm actually a little bit disappointed, and I have to be honest. I watched an awful lot of him last season for uh, for Manchester United. He still got into double figures. He was United's top goalscorer. I do still think he has an awful lot to offer, not in terms of you know a forward press and stuff like that, but. Part, I know Portugal had a poor World Cup but Portugal in general seemed to make it work with Ronaldo they, they get people to run they get people to do the little bit of a donkey work around them for whatever reason that didn't seem to, ma- to happen at Manchester United and look it shouldn't it shouldn't taint his legacy whatsoever he's been an outstanding footballer I gave an awful lot to the game but when somebody leaves the, the country and they're sighting they want to play in the Champions League and keep saying it over and over and then they go and cash in like that it, it leaves a very sour taste in the mouth thanks for your company
1: Cheers, thank you, See, Tracy, joining us in the studio. We're going to chat rugby with Mike Sherry in 60 seconds. Game on, rugby! And it's time to reflect on what was a busy nine-day period in the URC. It saw Leinster record two wins from two, Ulster and Munster one each. Connacht left with uh, little more than mere losing bonus points from Santa to reflect upon and join to make sense of it all uh, by former Munster player Mike Sherry. Hiya, Mike. Hi, Damien. How are you? Uh, not interview. too bad. And to you, you and yours. Um, I'm I'm no doubt Santa called and it's been a busy house no more than mine. So uh, it's all becoming a distant memory already, which is a terrible thing to say on the 2nd of January. Um, listen, I know that the, the greatest sin I can commit to a Munster man is to start a conversation like this by talking about Leinster. But when we look at this unbeaten run they're on and where they are sitting top of the table, a relatively flawless season to date um, listen you, you could look at it and say they're going to have their business well and truly done before they have to face the South African swing um, for their last two games of the season is there anyone that can beat them?
4: Um, on current evidence no they're a cut above everyone else they're a cut above uh, pretty much every club in European rugby at the minute uh, if not world rugby and um, they really are incredible. I had the pleasure of uh, working the Monster leinster match uh, last weekend and to see them up close in person. Um, they really are a special team. They've got incredible know-how in terms of how to win a game, even when they're off form. Like last night, Connacht's played very well in the first half. They got a couple of tries, but it just doesn't really matter who they have on the pitch. Their squad is so uh, adept at stepping up, taking their opportunity, and then seeing out a game. And then out of nowhere they can get 20-30 points ahead um, which really does show their class so any sniffs they get they're lethal um, and they're like you said they will have their business done by the time they go down to South Africa it'll be another great opportunity for them to maybe test some young guys rest some key players and um, when you're operating at the level they're at they have the luxury of doing that other teams in other leagues might complain about it but you know they've got themselves to that level and, and fair play.
1: And you know we, we, we talk and the, the joke is often cracked about you know Kerry footballers and fellas who have a mere four or five All-Ireland medals and likewise the Kilkenny hurlers and you'd have to wonder I know it's judged over the course of a season but like how important is a URC medal at this stage to fellas who have so many of them in their back pocket already are Leinster still in the position that they need to be and we talked about the South African teams upping the standard and helping them bridge the gap between what they face in the URC and what they will face from the English or French sides towards the tail end of the season like overall are Leinster where they need to be to push on for Europe or are they being tested enough
4: I do think they're being tested enough um, as I said I was at the Munster game last weekend and that was a really good test um, close encounter Um I think when you say, does it mean enough to, to them or is it enough motivation to win a URC uh, medal, I think with the, the players that are coming through, you constantly have new blood coming into that team, constantly have guys looking over their shoulder at the young talent coming up. and They've bred their own kind of environment where they're competing against each other uh, and medals are what they're competing for. Um, it's what you judge your career on at the end of the day. Last year, the way their season finished will really have hurt them. They were playing incredible rugby. They're seen as the best Leinster team of maybe the last decade. And to not come away with any silverware will have hurt them massively. You also have the added motivation of someone like Johnny Sexton. I think he said he's retiring. Maybe he's he's, he's rolled back on that a little bit. But it's most likely his last couple of months in a Leinster jersey. So they'll want to see it out for him amongst many other motivating factors. So. I don't think there's any lack of motivation and I think the league is only getting better. I think they're exactly where they need to be and they just they need to finish it out for themselves this year as opposed to last year. Yeah, I'll co-
1: yeah, we'll come back and talk about Johnny Sexton and um, Andy Farrell, who no doubt wants to put fellas in bubble wrap between now and um, the Six Nations starting in a couple of weeks' time. You, you mentioned there the, the belief and the ability to get over the line in a situation where other teams might crumble or let the heads drop. Um, Connacht beaten by two points by Ulster, Munster beaten by a point by Leinster uh, Munster then beating Ulster by like there's so many games that one team looked to have had it won and then lost it or one team had it lost and got back over the line how do you instil that sense of belief that exists in the Leinster team at the minute and let's be honest would have existed in Munster teams you know in the mid '90s when they were winning Heineken Cups that we are never beaten and the impact that that has on the opposing team as well, that will say, irrespective of what we throw at these lads, they're going to come back at us. Is that just air miles and experience, or how do you build that culture?
4: Yeah, I think you've answered it There's air miles, it's experience. It's something like Munster last night, getting on the right side of a result like that, and then you build from that. Leinster had years of heartbreak. They probably came out on the right side, that famous quarterfinal down to lose. that probably in 07 I think it was that probably built that into them and then they became far more comfortable in those environments then they got some really big wins and it's just second nature to them now and then the guys coming into the squad know they have to live up to that when you look at Munster maybe last night would be the kickstart of you know when they get into those situations it's muscle memory they know what to do um, and you just breed it from there it's confidence it's it's the run of form you're on when you're winning games week in, week out it's a lot easier to see those games go to go um, your way whereas if you're in a bad run of form and you're coming into the last five, ten minutes a couple of points down it's just it's very hard to explain you need to talk to someone far more qualified than me but it's just the run of form you're on the type of player you have and Sometimes the the bounce of the ball goes your way when Mm. things are going your way. It's just the way it happens. So
1: we look at it there. We've kind of boxed Leinster off. We look at at Munster. You know, we'll take great heart from the performance on St. Stephen's Day and we'll probably take as much more from the fact that they managed to score a try with the clock red and get that win, you know, in a game which Ulster looked to have had sewn up early on last night.
4: Yeah. um, Brilliant finish to that game. Uh, It was a bit of a, a... Dance group in the first half um, and then I think the second half is far more enjoyable to watch as a fan I don't think Ulster uh, they had a lot of opportunities. as I was reading a, an interview with uh, Dan McFarlane today he said there's 11 entries into Munster's 22 and they came around with scores once or twice on the flip side Munster had maybe three or four entries and they got two tries watching the game it felt like Munster were playing a lot of the rugby now it was in around the halfway line in between the two tens, but they looked dangerous uh, whereas Ulster were kind of Um, I don't know, they just seemed a bit flat last night. It was a piece of magic from um, McCluskey, the pass out wide to Balacoon and a brilliant finish from him to get the try. But I felt Munster were worth the win. I know they pulled it out of the bag in the last couple of minutes, but they looked the better team. They looked like they were trying to play more rugby. Um, And that would breed massive life into their season. Uh, You could see the reaction at the end from Graham Roundtree, the players... Um, with what probably wasn't a, a full-strength team. Mm. A lot of guys getting opportunities and rotation. So that would be a huge confidence boost. If they'd lost that game, they would have been in serious trouble in terms of making playoffs. So it completely changes the the outlook of the season. Uh, and I was delighted to, to see them come up out on the right side of that result. Uh, Looking at Ulster, they've had a really bad run of games, bad results. Uh, it's kind of hard to put your finger on it at the start of the season. And kind of halfway up to Christmas they were looking very good playing some great rugby and it's just kind of gone off the rails recently.
1: Yeah Ulster third in the table, Munster ninth in the table but just a point off uh, that top eight we um, We've you know Leinster top of the bunch, eight points clear of the Stormers um, just a word on Connacht, got off to a really bad start to the season which was beyond the players control because obviously games had to be played away from home with the new pitch bedding in but again are in the prospect now of missing out on on you know, Champions Cup has gone beyond them at this stage. Let's be very honest. Um, how much of a situation can it be when your director of rugby announces they're on the way out the gap, and there's so much uncertainty around whether the existing coaching staff will still be there next season?
4: It's definitely unsettling, but you know they're professional players. They're fighting for their livelihoods, their contracts, they're supporting their families. They they can't let that creep in. It's an easy excuse. Um, it's been thrown at Munster a couple of times over the last couple of coaching uh, changes but uh, the players they can't really fall back on that they're playing good rugby they just I don't know do, do they lack quality obviously against Leinster most teams do lack the quality that they have but they're getting themselves in good positions and then it's just chronic mistakes okay. penalty that they're giving away and um, in ill-discipline a poor set-piece at times that they have the tools they have the players it's just very hard as I said earlier to, to get on the right side of those results um, and Andy Friend leaving like i speak, speak to a couple of guys up there they, they love him up there he's left a really or he hasn't left yet but he's put in really solid foundations so I don't think that's um, the reason why or something to fall back on as to why they're not coming out with results at the minute
1: OK we'll wait and see how it all plays out Mike thanks so much for your time as always No problem. Mike Sherry joining us there. Uh, Liverpool had the ball in the back of the net, Darwin Nunes, but it's been ruled out for offside after a VAR intervention. Um, Touched upon Liverpool's performance. uh, Treble substitution at half time. Nabi Keita, Joel Matip, and Andy Robertson brought on for Costa Simikas, Virgil van Dijk, and Harvey Elliott. So no hanging around from Jurgen Klopp. We'll see how that plays out. We're going to chat darts after the break. And you're very welcome back to the programme. It is semi-final night at the PDC World Championships and uh, we're going to look ahead to that in the company of our RTE Online colleague, Michael Glennon, who's with us. Hiya, Michael. Good evening Damien, how are you? Not too bad, good to talk to you, thanks so much for being with us Um, So we have um, Clemens against Smith and Vanderberg against Van Gerwen um, This evening, when when we look at at how this is all starting to shake up And I know last night would have been seen as quite a a potentially decisive evening In terms of some of the quarterfinal results Um, Are we looking now firmly at a position where Van Gerwen is virtually back to his best And looks certainly to be the man to beat if you're to have success here?
5: Yeah, yesterday was called a uh, moving day um, into Alex- Alexandra Palace, and I would say that he, if if he's not back to his best, Van Gerwen he's getting there, and you can even see in his attitude after the like during the match and after the match his determination to to get this fourth world title. But um, he, he he's come through to come through without any real hiccups, and he's has a tournament average of one hundred and three. He's averaged over a hundred in, in all of his games so far. So. It's that plus his his form, which would suggest that he is, you know, the man to beat. And there, somebody will have to produce something exceptional to to, to beat him.
1: Without disrespect to the, the first of the semi-finals, but when we look at Dmitry Van der Berg against Michael van Gerwen tonight, if you were to be, uh, you know, looking at it in a certain light of analysis, could you say that that's effectively the final? Whoever comes out of that will be the strong favourite.
5: Um, just, I would say that MVG will come out it and will be the strong favourite but the, on the other side um, it, it, Michael Smith is the problem I, I think he will beat Clemens who's on good form but Michael Smith is, is, is just won his first major a couple of months ago with the Grand Slam so he'd been the bridesmaid for, for a long time, he'd been in 8 major finals and, and, and lost them all and again that seems to have changed his demeanour on the stage so Michael Smith ranks 4th in the world he, he hasn't been playing exceptionally it hasn't got up to the averages that we've seen Michael van Gerwen get up to but when he hits his form like he did for the Grand Slam he would he would um, prove a, a very tough test for van Gerwen if they were to meet in the final and it wouldn't be a huge shock if Smith was to beat van Gerwen um, but but that's providing they both get there. Uh, and that happens
1: probably one of the sporting images of 2023 arrived on the opening night of the year yeah. um, Gerwin Price last night who deservedly was the subject of quite a bit of attention for accusations that he had mocked the disabled at an earlier point in the championship but then yes. bizarrely re-emerges at one point last night with noise cancelling headphones which you know is this playing to the crowd is this making a point like what you know c- can anyone make sense of what we saw on the hockey last night
5: it was very strange first of all because he, he's an exceptional darts player and he's the world number one um, and that he was put in a position where he was uncomfortable enough to, to try something like that which has never really been seen Raymond van Barneveld and another couple of players have worn little earbuds as protection from time to time but n- nobody has ever seen these ear defenders you might see them on a child at a, at a match in Crow Park or something um, but so he was put in a position where he felt that he, he, things were going wrong and he had to try to do something to change it but also there was about 600 German fans there and, and Price is not really a, a fan favourite in the first place and when you add in the 600 or so German fans who were shouting for Clemens mm. he, he must have felt that this may help to turn the tide which of course he, although he hit 180 with his first three darts it didn't turn the tight, and he was well beaten 5-1 in the end yeah. he, he had given up you know yeah. um, towards that last
1: so, set So you, you think it was a genuine attempt to block out the crowd rather than an attempt to stir the momentum
5: I think so it, it was a bit of both but he, he would have been all through this tournament he's been getting it um, getting the booze, uh, and that and it was just that The Germans would have been so intense about theirs. He was just trying it. Um, I mean, he he was desperate at that stage. But again, as I said at the start, it's so strange that the world number one had to resort to that because he is an exceptional player. Um, So that's why it was... If somebody else that we hadn't have heard of or somebody lower down the rankings put that on it'd be very strange but the fact that the world number one did it made it, uh, exceptionally yeah. strange
1: I, we, we won't see the likes of that um, again I should mention Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain has got a goal back for Liverpool 2-1 55 minutes played um, in that one um, eight Irish players um, like you know Keane Barry has done so much in recent years that there's always going to be so much focus on him he's a real star for the future likewise you know Willie O'Connor Josh Rock from Antrim best of the Irish best of the eight that have been involved overall yeah an underwhelming world championship from an Irish perspective is that a fair way of a saying Yeah,
5: yeah a couple a couple of guys who who maybe like the likes of Darrell Gurney who was a quarter finalist here a couple of years ago went out 3-0 in the first round and you'd expect him to put up much more of an effort didn't play well never found his form um, and as you say Keane Barry was knocked out by a, a qualifier who was his first time playing on TV really and um, Brendan Dolan won one match and then went out meekly enough to um, Johnny Clayton. And Dolan had been in the quarterfinals a couple of years ago as well. So um, apart from Josh Rock, um, who got into the fourth round and lost to Clayton, the, the others would probably not be happy with their return and they just need to put in a bit more work building up to it uh, next year for whoever qualifies, of course. But uh, Josh Rock, he was the man of the moment. He was the um, Sky Sports favourite there for a while. Um, in the build-up or through his run he was playing some really really good darts and he just came up against uh, Johnny Clayton and even though he started off brilliantly he, um, winning the first set 3-0 Johnny Clayton once he got his his bearings he, he uses experience to get over uh, Josh Rock who's only 21 so plenty of time for him in the future and there will be titles I think major titles in his future uh,
1: let, Let's be very honest there are people who go to Alexandra Palace are in the midst of the chaos and don't pay any attention to what's actually happening Happening in the competition itself so the atmosphere is never going to dampen the atmosphere is always going to take the roof off the place Um, how good a world championship has it been like we're still awaiting the first nine darter with three last year so you know for some people that's maybe a mark of not necessarily a decline but a fall off somewhat in standards for you who has been glued to so much of it and has watched so much of it analytically rather than being subsumed by the atmosphere where would you put 2023 so far? No, it, it, it's very
5: good. And know a couple of years ago they expanded the they expanded the tournaments from seventy two to uh, ninety six. So you, you have a kind of you know a third of the players who probably years ago you wouldn't have seen them at this stage. So that kind of uh, colors it slightly. Um, we yes, we had three nine darters last year and we haven't had one this year. They're on track to beat the. the the number of maximums or the record number of maximums for a world championship so if the next three games the two semi-finals and the final produce what they produced last year then it will be record breaking in terms of 180s um, and yeah as you say then about the crowd i mean they're not re- they're not necessarily darts fans that are at the alexander palace there would be a lot of uh, christmas office christmas parties and that and people would Buy their tickets long before they know who is actually playing. So they are there for the fun, you know, but, you know, maybe 75% of them wouldn't be, have too much interest in darts, but they go along with it and they get involved in in, the, in all of the, the shenanigans, we'll say.
1: Yeah, the, the quality of signage isn't what it was as well. I'm, I'm disappointed. No, no, no. no, no, I, no. Poor efforts. Poor, but <laughs> come here. They've got two semi finals and a final to rectify all of that. Uh, Michael, good to talk to you as always. Thanks so much for your insight. Yes. All the best. Michael Glennon with us there. You can. Uh, Follow him online. He's always uh, he's always a good man to get involved in the conversations on Twitter. We are going to finish the programme with racing. It's uh, 10 weeks tomorrow until the 2023 Cheltenham Festival gets underway. If you're still recovering from Leopardstown, that might... Focus the mind somewhat, and plenty of people, no doubt, forensically analysing who did what, or maybe in more cases, who didn't do what, uh, between Leopardstown, Limerick, Kempton Park, and everywhere else over the course of the Christmas. And if you're a regular listener to RT Radio 1 in particular, you'll know Owen Ward is the man who calls all the big races home for us, and he's with me. Owen, how are you? I'm not too bad, Damon, yourself. You've recovered. I have indeed
0: plenty of uh, racing to enjoy over the festive period. I suppose a lot of people switch off over over Christmas, but uh, racing really hits top gear this time of the year. You're,
1: you're no different from a Premier League footballer. That's you know um, at <laughs> first and only comparison. <laughs> yeah, well, come here. You know, I'm here. to You line them up, and I'll knock them out. Knock them out the park. Um, let, come here. There's, there's, there's so Realistically, there's one place we could start and end this conversation, and it is to talk about Willie Mullins. And it is probably even to use the word dominate. isn't a fair way of describing just how much he blew everyone who came near him out of the water over the course of Leopardstown.
0: Yeah, and Leopardstown, it's, it just seems to be one festival after the other. Obviously, we've, we've just come from, from Leopardstown and seen the, the domination that he had there, 13 wins across the 28 races that would have taken place over the, the four days. Um, you think of almost, what, six wins from from seven races on the, the second day of the Christmas has almost went through the card. It's almost unprecedented level of, of domination there, as you mentioned, but it kind of just follows on from what we've seen from right throughout 2022. You know, 10 winners at the at the Cheltenham Festival this year. That's the same number as the the combined British trainers altogether managed on their home soil it's it's just been a phenomenal season or year for, for Willie Mullins and I suppose it shows no sign of sopping from what we saw over the, the four days um, over at Christmas so much strength and depth right through all the divisions, and that's probably what has, has laid the foundations for the, the domination and the success that we're seeing from, from Willie like if you take Blue Lord for example who was one of his easiest grade one winners over Christmas he won the, the Paddy Rewards Club chase I think the distance was about 10 or 11 lengths back to, to Cat Captain Guinness, who's a, it's a very solid grade two, grade three performance. And it, it was really a performance that put Blue Lord into the champion chase picture, who's a horse who wasn't really being factored into that division at all. But the two mile chase division, that's already one that Willie has the reigning champion in a, an Ergaman for. So he, he's building up that strength and, and depth behind that. We all know horses that are just like athletes, they all have their off days. So come the the Cheltenham Festival, if an Ergaman, God forbid, was to was to have a, an upset on the day, was to get beaten, was to have an Early fall. We also what happened with Shishkin in the Champion Chase last year. Willie now has a couple of aces up his sleeve. He has Blue Lord coming into the picture for the Champion Chase, and it was really! Replicated right across so many of the the divisions over at Leopardstown, be it the novice hurdlers, novice chasers, right in through to the the, the staying and into the handicaps as well, because that's where he's also picking up so many of his uh, big successes. So through so many of the darts at the the Paddy Power Chase, the one race that eluded him uh, on the the second day, of the the Leopardstown Festival on the 27th, mm. and I suppose somewhat ironically, it was at Real Steel, a horse that he formerly had under his care, now with Eric McNamara down in Limerick. The one horse uh, that managed to get onto the scoreboard that yeah. day that wasn't in his yard, but it was a a phenomenal feat. When when you go through each day and look at the the performances and the horses that he produced and think of that at this time of the year Willie's really only beginning to take the, the wraps off the off his top horses at this point of the season you know he doesn't want to okay. get them out early it's such a long season ahead they've all got to be going right through to the end of the season at the Punch Town Festival in the spring so he, he's very much gearing all these horses at, at a spring campaign not wanting to get them out when the when the ground's that bit that bit quicker okay. than ideal for his you know big strong national hunt horses so we're now right in into the depths of the winter and this is when, when we're seeing these horses building up towards the, the Cheltenham Festival in March as it said it's only that 10 or 12, 12 weeks away then through into, into Ferry House and, and, and Punchestown
1: Yeah and if we look at, at Cheltenham you look at Constitution Hill we previewed the Christmas meetings on the Thursday before Christmas on the programme and you know Jane Mangan and, and Don McLean in studio talked about basically that Christmas hurdle almost being a referendum on exactly where Constitution Hill was at and Nicky Henderson can't have been happier with you know a 17 length victory and now the shortest price favourite for any race at Cheltenham
0: came through us with, with the flying colors it was just there was, there was no chink in his armor whatsoever such a, a facile performance I mean you think of that he, he's putting epiton to a former champion hurdler herself beating her by 17 lengths increasing the winning margin from the fighting fifth at Newcastle when he when he beat her by 12 lengths on that occasion you know it, it's hard to see you know if you're one of his rivals going into the champion hurdle in, in a couple of months time how do you go about getting him beating you know tactics wise but the scary thing for them is everything seems to have been tried already we've got to this point you know they, were, they were, he went an incredibly strong gallop in last year's Supreme novice. Hurdle he finished out the race so strongly when when really all of his rivals they were all faltering off that strong gallop and we saw then on his return in the, in the fighting fifth at Newcastle nobody wanted to get on so uh, his rider Nico de Bonville he set off made the running there was no chinks in his armour that day and I think that Newcastle run it probably gave Nico even more confidence because on Stephen's day over in Kempton he was happy enough to take a lead from the rank outsider Highway uh, 1 no two, but when we felt that he was, you know, wasn't going quick enough as they headed out on, on the final circuit, off he went on Constitution Hill. Took off, took off the running um, with four flights of hurdles still to be jumped, still a, a long way from home. And a lot of people, you know, would want to be keeping the their cards close to the chest, not wanting to, to go too soon. But he was happy. He knew the horse that he had underneath him, and off he went and wins by seventeen lengths. He looks infallible from what we've seen so far the only question I suppose is the strength really of the, the pool of two mile hurdlers in Britain at the moment, you know he's beaten Epiton by 12 and 17 lengths this season okay. you look at what the, the home team had Stateman obviously winning the Matheson hurdle for, for Willie Mullins and if we use Charge as the base to really judge where Stateman might be, come the, the champion hurdle with Sharjah twice beat Epiton by 10 lengths and with Stateman beating Sharjah by 9 lengths, if, if we do the maths, that does bring him an awful lot closer than what Stateman or with Epitont has been able to do uh, so far this season so it might not just be any sort of a coronation but uh, you'd have to say he does look to be the star performer and you can see why he is as, pri- as sure a price as what you mentioned OK
1: um, we talk of star performers well obviously the, the star race or the big race for a lot of people at Cheltenham will be the Gold Cup loads of contenders out in force um, Plutard obviously not one of those as a result of injury but you know a couple of big notable runs for horses who will be in the mix are serious Gold Cup contenders in a couple of weeks time. Yeah, and
0: you'd have to say probably with the Aplutard the season just not going the way Henry would have wanted obviously the reigning Gold Cup champion from last year, that it's really opened up the, the picture and the, the Gold Cup picture it has quite an open look to it at, at this point, so you're looking for those horses trying to, to step forward, obviously Aplutard it, it was such a disappointment that he wasn't able to take up the engagement at the Savills Chase, he got that bang to attend, and on the journey up to Leopardstown, so that was particularly un- unfortunate after what's happened You know, this season with the, the disappointing performance that he put in at Haydock, we, we thought at least after the Betfair chase when, when they found the allergy that he would picked up travelling over that he had an excuse for that poor display and this was really his his chance for him to show what that he was back to, to business and was able to put a, a performance in so I suppose for Henry de Bromhead, he's at a bit of a crossroads as to now what he does for the rest of the season with Appalutard does he maybe try to go to, to Thurlis wait for the, the Irish Gold Cup uh, at Leopardstown in, in February or does he go straight to the, to the Cheltenham Gold Cup in terms of that Savile chase obviously conflated uh, Gordon Elliott Horse was the horse that stepped forward. He won, uh, beat Kemboy by five lengths. You'd have to see Kemboy's probably been around the block uh, quite a while now. You know, is a five-length defeat of him really a, a class of performance that you put puts you bang there in, in the Gold Cup picture? Okay. For me, he probably still has a, a bit more ground to find. You know, if he does go straight to to the Gold Cup with Conflated, uh, Brave Man's Game obviously won the, the King George on Stephen's Day over in Kempton. Mm. Phenomenal performance for King, uh, Paul Nicholls his trainer his 13th King George and it does you know, obviously the King George Paul Nichols for so long has been teeing up this horse as, as, as a big King George horse okay. from ar- arguably in the last 18 months he's really been bigging up building up uh, his prospects for the race delivered upon that and very much vindicated the, the view that Paul had, had of the horse I suppose Press say was beaten when, when getting rid of his rider at the, the final fence. you you'd have to say, with, with a stiffer track that will be what the, the Gold Cup presents at Cheltenham in March. You'd, I would probably favour L'Homme Presse to, okay. to overturn the, the form with Braveman's game Um, I think Braveman's game the, the connections even before the, the King George's owners were were possibly bringing up the, the possibility of, of going for the, the Ryanair so now we're looking at the, the Gold Cup over a complete different track and a, a longer trip now a real mm. prospect I think he still has more to find but for Henry de Bromhead, there was some compensation yesterday of course with Manella Indo beating Statler Statler's first defeat over fences and of course uh, Manella Indo former Gold Cup winner was brilliant to see him back in the winner's enclosure and he he's no forlorn choice uh, hope when it comes to the Gold Cup in
1: March An awful lot still to be decided Owen thanks so much for your insights uh, enjoy the rest and relaxation before it all kicks in uh, all over again thanks so much for being with us Talk to you soon Owen Ward with us there that brings an end to the programme our broadcast coordinator tonight Laura Lee Davies the programme produced by Gary Moran from Damien O'Mara and all of us here thank you for your time until we chat again and stand by for Beta, who's on the way in three minutes time
4: Two